Shantaya, unto the most peaceful, Namaha, we offer our obeisances, Svanistaya, by being situated in one's position, Manasi, in the mind, Apartam, without any meaning, Vilasat, appearing, Dwadaya, in whom the dual Jagat of the cosmic manifestation, Stana, maintenance, Laya, annihilation, Udayeshu, and for creation, Vihita, accepted, Maya, material, Guna, of the modes of nature, Vigrahaya, the forms. So the, the prachetas in this verse are going to deal with an apparent contradiction or difficult thing to understand about the Lord. Translation purport by Dear Lord, we beg to offer our obeisances unto you. When the mind is fixed upon you, the world of duality, although a place for material enjoyment appears meaningless. Your transcendental form is full of transcendental bliss. We therefore offer our respects unto you. That's the first point that Jadis are making. Kind of two points in one. Then they're dealing with, there's a question that may arise. Though if the Lord is actually unattached, then why is he creating the world? So Jacob's answer this in the last part. Your appearances as Lord Brahma, Lord Vishnu, and Lord Shiva are meant for the purpose of creating, maintaining, and annihilating this cosmic manifestation. In other words, they're not due to attachment on your part. You are above duality. Dvayaya. Purport. A pure devotee whose mind is always engaged in the service of the Lord, can certainly appreciate the impermanence of this material world. Although such a devotee may be engaged in executing material activities, this stage is called anashakti, nashakti. As explained by Srila Rupa Goswami, anashaktasya vishayam, Yatarham Anybody know what the next rest of that verse is? Nirbanda Krishna Sambande Yukdivaya verse that Shiva Prabhupada quotes a lot. A devotee is always unattached to material activities because in the liberated stage his mind is always fixed on the lotus feet of the Lord. This material world is called Dwaita, the world of duality. A devotee knows very well that everything within this material world is but a manifestation of the Supreme Lord's energy. To maintain the three modes of material nature, the Supreme Lord takes on different forms as Lord Brahma, Lord Vishnu, Lord Shiva. Unaffected by the modes of material nature, 
The Lord takes on different forms to create, maintain, and annihilate this cosmic manifestation. The conclusion is that although the pure devotee appears to engage in material activities in the service of the Lord, he knows very well that material enjoyment for sense gratification has no use whatsoever. Shudaya Shantaya Namaswanishtaya Manastipartam Vilasadvayaya Namo Jagatstana Layo Dayeshu Grihitamaya Gunavigrahaya. Dear Lord, we beg to offer our obeisances unto you. When the mind is fixed upon you, the world of duality, although a place for material enjoyment, appears meaningless. Your transcendental form is full of transcendental bliss. We therefore offer our respects unto you. Your appearances as Lord Brahma, Lord Vishnu, and Lord Shiva are meant for the purpose of creating, maintaining, and annihilating this cosmic manifestation. So here in this verse, we see something about the nature of the Lord and the nature of the liberated soul, the pure devotee, with very clear explanation of how to achieve the transcendental position above material duality. So material duality basically means this is good and this is not good. And what is good and what is not good depends upon the particular body and psychology that each of us have. So the pig is seeing something as good that I see as bad. And even, even among other human beings, you know, so for some people, very hot chili is good. And for other people, very hot chili is bad. I know one devotee that he likes to eat chili for dessert. Instead of cake, he eats chili. And for other people, chili is just suffering. So that depends on the, the particular modes that are covering us. We have a filter over us. And this filter, depending on the combination of the modes, it makes certain things appear good and certain things appear bad. There's an expression, to see the world through rose-colored glasses. Have you ever heard that? So if you put on glasses that are sort of pinkish, the whole world appears pink. So we're all wearing glasses of a particular combination of the modes of material nature. And that particular combination makes certain things appear attractive to us and other things appear unattractive to us. And this attraction and repulsion is due to what we think will give us happiness. I think, oh, this thing will give me pleasure and this thing will give me pain. So the mind is engaged in this accepting and rejecting and accepting and rejecting. The mind is constantly jumping from one topic to another. Should I accept this? Should I reject this? Should I accept this? Should I reject this? Should I accept this? Or should I reject this? And one who is absorbed in this duality is never peaceful. We're constantly worrying about how to avoid that which will give us pain, and we're constantly worrying about how to get that which will give us pleasure. How do I get something that will please my body and mind? Then once I get it, how do I keep it? 
you buy nice clothes and immediately they get stained or they get ripped or something. And you get, like you build this nice temple and the walls get dirty. And you have to paint the walls three times a year or something. So you know, you get something, then you have to maintain it, maintain it, and you're always worrying about how you're going to lose it, how to keep unhappiness far away. So you're always disturbed, always disturbed. Even when you're so-called enjoying the happiness, you're always disturbed. It's just like if I bring you a plate of your favorite food. So each of us, we have our favorite foods. Even in the spiritual world, they have their favorite foods. So we have, if you have a plate of your favorite food, samosas or dosas or maybe pizza, and standing behind you, there's a police officer with a warrant for your arrest. And he says, I'm just waiting for the command from headquarters when I can arrest you. You say, how long do I have to eat? He says, I don't know. It could be one minute, it could be 20 minutes, I don't know. And you can think, what do I eat first? Do I save the Golodjavan for the end? Maybe then I won't have time to eat it. And the whole time you're eating, you're going to be filled with anxiety. So as long as we're in this world of duality, I need to get something for my happiness and avoid something for my pain and hold on to it. Then we're constantly in anxiety, even in the middle of our enjoyment. Not only is it not real happiness, but it's temporary. And the happiness itself, first of all, the happiness is not happiness because it's temporary, which means I'm constantly in anxiety about losing it. We're constantly in anxiety, oh, the person I love will die, or something terrible will happen to them, or they won't love me anymore. My house will burn down, my money will be gone, and constantly. But even the happiness itself is not real happiness. It's just something in the mind. It's not really happening to me, as is explained in the fifth chapter of Bhagavad Gita later on also. That I'm not really doing anything, I'm just the witness. It's just the interaction of the modes of nature. The Shastra compares it to a dream. I think if the Shastra were written now, it would compare it to a movie or a computer game. Sadhguta, our god brother, compared it to a computer game. So the person in the in the computer game, they're, they're enjoying or they're suffering, but it's not really me. Or the person in the film, someone's watching a film and the character is enjoying or suffering. And I also feel happy or distressed, right? We see in the airplane, people are watching the movie. And when the character gets something nice, everyone is laughing and enjoying. And when the character is suffering, then everybody is tense. But it's not really happening to you. So material happiness is not really happening to me. It's like eating in a dream. Have you ever eaten in a dream? Or you drink water in a dream? And then you wake up and you think, why am I thirsty? Or sometimes even in the dream, you're thinking, I'm drinking so much water. What's, what's wrong with this water? Right? So sometimes even in material illusion, the soul says, what's, what's going on here? There's something funny about this place. Something, something strange is going on here. So the way to cut, get above this duality, to get to the platform of peace, shantaya, like the Lord, is to give up this duality. What's the word for duality? Dvayaya. 
to be above duality. And as Prabhupada quotes here, to be anashakti, to be detached. So there's two ways people try to be happy. One is they try to enjoy, and the other is they try to be detached. The, the two main material methods. Now we can say also through mystic yoga, but that's really another kind of enjoyment. It's trying to enjoy on the subtle platform. So one way I'm going to be happy, I'm going to manipulate, try to manipulate, I'm going to try to control the material energy so that I only have the things that my mind will accept. I don't have the things that my mind will reject. And I try to keep those things. Somehow I try to hold on to them. That's one way. And anybody with a tiny bit of intelligence can understand that that way is useless. As Prabhupada says here, material enjoyment for sense gratification has no use whatsoever. It's entirely useless. You may be able to manipulate the material energy for a few moments to get everything just right, but then you can't keep it. And so while you're enjoying it, there's anxiety. You, you never have pure enjoyment. It, it just doesn't happen. So that's no use. So someone a little bit more intelligent says, okay, the solution is detachment. That I just won't care anymore. I won't care. If I get jalebis or I get chilies or if it's hot or cold or here if it's hot, hotter or hottest. I probably none of you own a pair of socks even. So, you know, I just, I won't care anymore. I'll say it just doesn't matter whether I stay here, whether I stay there. The uh, externals of the renounced ashrams are meant to inculcate this kind of detachment. If you are staying in a different place every three days, it's easy to feel detached because you're thinking it's not my place. You may stay in a place that's not to your liking, but you think, well, in one or two days, I'll leave. So what, what does it matter? If you think it's your place, then you think, okay, I have to make the walls like this and the pictures like this. I remember my husband and I once got in a big argument about what color to paint the kitchen. You know, and then one year later, we sold the house. After that, I thought, I'll never again argue about the color of the walls. But when you're just traveling with nothing, then that detachment naturally comes. Also, you see how everyone is trying to enjoy everywhere and no one is really enjoying. But that we cannot stay on this platform of anushanta. It's not possible. So that also has a flaw. And therefore, this so-called detachment generally becomes just bogatiyaga, bogatiyaga, bogatiyaga. I try to enjoy the world, it doesn't work, and then I become detached. Say, oh, this is useless. And I can't remain on that platform. Why can't we remain on that platform? Why can't we just say, just, okay, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me. Senses are strong, but that's a material reason. There's a spiritual reason why I can't stay on that platform. The soul is active. It's not the body that's active. Because as soon as the soul leaves, the body stops being active. It's not the body that's active. It's not even the mind that's active. The mind, and the, the mind is just a machine. What's really active is me. 
know, the, the cars, they're not active. The driver is active. So I am active. I'm active. Actually, the mind, the best place for the mind is stillness, which is what's being discussed here. Therefore, you find the great devotees, they often put their mind and body in a still condition and they're active within. So I can't be happy just being detached because I'm naturally active. And why else? What else am I naturally? What is my nature as a soul? Pleasure seeking. And under my abyssa, I always compare this to the weapons that they call their heat seeking weapons. You've heard of this in the military? So they shoot this missile. You know, generally, if you shoot a, a weapon, you have to have very good aim. Like Arjuna, who could focus on the eye of the bird. So nowadays, you don't have to have such good aim. You just shoot your missile, and the missile is designed that it's attracted to heat. So it goes to the engine of the other plane. It will, it will self-correct. So we are pleasure-seeking. Whenever we think there's pleasure, we will go to it. So we cannot stay in a place of just neutrality. For a while, for a while, you can sit on the beach and just look at the waves. And after a while, you get bored. How long can you sit and look at the waves? One hour, two hours, three hours. If I said for the rest of your life, you have to sit at the beach and look at the waves, that would be punishment. So this, this so-called detachment, that's also not the solution. We go back and forth, generally. Materialistic people go back and forth. They enjoy something, then they go away from it. They enjoy something, then they go away. In fact, if you don't go away from some enjoyment, you can't enjoy it at all. Like sometimes people who are very, very fat, they're eating constantly, and they don't even know they're eating anymore. They don't even taste the food anymore. If you had your favorite food for breakfast and lunch and dinner and breakfast and lunch and dinner and, break, and snacks also, after a while you become nauseated. So therefore, there's, we take some enjoyment, then we separate ourselves from it for a while. Then we enjoy it again. Otherwise, this, we can't even enjoy anything. So this so-called detachment of bhogati, that doesn't solve our problem. But we do, we do accept the principle that there's greater happiness in detachment than in sense gratification. Therefore, the jnanis are higher than the karmis, as Rupa Goswami explains in Upadeshamrita. If you have enough intelligence to say, this material enjoyment has no use whatsoever, as Prabhupada says, completely, 100% useless. It gives you unsatisfying, slight external pleasure for a moment mixed with anxiety. So I'm going to give you a half a spoon of sweet rice mixed with sand. What is the use of it? I guess if you have nothing, then you think, well, at least there's something. So the jnanis, they just become detached. And when you become, when you're detached, you are peaceful. It's a fact. 
You are, and that peace is definitely a higher pleasure than material sense enjoyment. There's no question about it. But in order to maintain that peace, you have to have a higher level of enjoyment. You have to have a higher level of activity. So therefore, Srila Prabhupada says here, a pure devotee whose mind is always engaged in the service of the Lord. Or the Prachetis are saying, when the mind is fixed upon you, then the world of duality appears meaningless. So how to maintain that detachment? Have you often wondered that? How do I maintain that detachment? I mean, we'll often feel very detached, and then something happens. <laughs> something happens that we can't maintain that detachment. Either some sense object comes in our area of senses. Something we see, something we hear, something we smell, something we touch, that disturbs our senses. And our detachment is broken, like the yogis. They're meditating underwater, and they just hear some jewelry. They don't even see the woman. They just hear the jewelry, and they're thinking, oh, it must be a woman. They don't even know, young woman, old woman, ugly woman, beautiful woman, just hearing the jewelry gets broken. Or also get things, our detachment gets broken when things are very disturbing. If somebody that we love insults us, I mean, we don't care so much if some stranger on the street insults us. Somebody that we care about. Somebody, somebody that we think we need for our sense and joy. If they insult us, we, our detachment is broken. Or if we, if whenever we, something that's threatened, that we think, I really need this. You know, our money, our home, our, our body. Then we lose our detachment. We think, how to keep this detachment? And here it said, when the mind is fixed upon Krishna, then we can keep that detachment. Then the things of the world will not disturb us. Neither the so-called pleasurable things, nor the so-called painful things. Now anybody can do this mechanically for a short time and get some idea of what this is. Prabhupada explains this in the teachings of Lord Kapila that a materialistic man can put his mind in such a way that he's not disturbed even by a surgical operation. He gave the example of Stalin. That Stalin, you all know who Stalin was? Yeah, the, the former Russian dictator. Was he a nice man? No. He certainly wasn't a devotee. He wasn't even materially a nice person. He was probably very much in the mode of ignorance. But he was afraid somebody would kill him in the surgery. So he was able to put his mind in a place so they didn't give him any anesthesia. And he had the surgery and he wasn't screaming or anything. And I've met, I've met a number of people, and in fact I even did this myself on two different occasions, where just by putting your mind in a particular way, then even great physical pain, you, you will not feel it. It will not disturb you. So anybody can do that mechanically. You can learn, really, in half an hour or an hour how to do that mechanically. But of course, because we want to enjoy, we don't maintain that. And how do they do that? They fix their mind on something else. They fix their mind on something else. Anything. I mean, you can, if you focus on a candle or a spot on the wall or anything, and you completely focus on that thing, 
then nothing will disturb you. Of course, that's mechanical. You can't maintain it. But that's the principle. The principle is that if you fix your mind on Krishna, I'm sure we all have experienced that if I'm really, really absorbed, if my mind is absorbed in something, I don't even notice what is happening around me. I'm not even aware. Like some of you sitting in the class, maybe you're not really here. You know, if you had an argument with somebody this morning, or you're expecting to get a lot of money later in the day, or you're expecting to lose some money, maybe you have something invested in the stock market, and you're thinking, I wonder when the class is over so I can check my investments. Or maybe you're planning on taking some journey tomorrow or later in the day, and you're thinking about that. If you're absorbed in something, or your mother's in the hospital, if you're absorbed in something, either positive or negative, you're not aware of what's going on around you. You don't even notice if just good things or bad things. It doesn't matter to you. Right? Or if we're very excited about something, if somebody insults you or something, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Oh, I'm going to Vrindavan tomorrow or something like that. Forget everything. So we all have a little experience of this. Actually, Prabhupada gave a lecture in the place called Sanat in India, where he said, we all know what ashakti is. Here Prabhupada's talking about anashakti, anashakti, being detached. But our way of becoming detached is to become attached to Krishna, to fix our mind upon something. You cannot stay detached. You can try it. Try staying detached. It's not our natural position. So the way we become detached is by becoming attached. Therefore, this verse that Srila Prabhupada is quoting by Guru Goswami. What's the next line? Nirbandha Krishna Sambandha. I think it's Jiva Goswami who wrote a book, Madhava Mahotsava. Jiva Goswami. And that's a story of Srimati Radharani being crowned the queen of Vrindavan. Which is very important for the Leela because Krishna often accuses Radharani and her friends of picking flowers that belong to him. And he says, you know, I own the forest. And they say, no you don't, Radharani is the queen of Vrindavan, she owns the forest. And they argue like this, or that Krishna collects taxes, you know that? Krishna blocks the path of the gopis and he says, you're carrying all these milk products, it's worth a lot. Or sometimes he says, you're very beautiful and your beauty is worth a lot of money. <laughs> so you have to pay You have to pay me a tax. I'm Nanda Maharaj's son. I'm the king's son. And then they'll say, no, Radharani is the queen, not you. She was crowned with the queen. Who are you? You should pay tax to us. So they have a, a nice joking... Right, so anyway, when Radharani was crowned the, the queen, Jiva Goswami explains that after the Abhishek, she gave a benediction and she said, anybody who is here, they will be free from all of their, uh, all of their, their vows. They'll not be bound by anything. And then Radharani's friends became very frightened because they thought we are bound by love to Radharani and if we are liberated from these uh, ropes, then what will happen to us? So the way you get free from the world of duality is you become attached to the non-dual world. And then you can maintain a position of peace. 
just like the Lord does. It says here the Lord's unaffected by the modes of material nature, although he creates, maintains, and annihilates everything through the agency of Rama and Vishnu and Shiva. Still, he's not, he's not affected. He doesn't become disturbed because he's absorbed in the non-duality. And here it says from Prabhupada, it's very interesting in this purport and a nice example of why one should study the Shastra completely, not just take one sentence. In the beginning of the purport, Prabhupada says, although, it, it, although such a devotee may be engaged in executing material activities, this stage is called anasha. So there he's saying a devotee is engaged in executing material activities. Or maybe. The end of the purport, Prabhupada says that although the pure devotee appears to engage in material activities. So first part of the purport, it seems Prabhupada saying the devotee is engaged in material activities. In the second part of the purport, he says that it may look like that. So even if we're engaged in what appears to be material activities, if you have a body, then you have to do things like wash your body, put clothes on your body. I mean, there's some abhidutas who don't do that. They don't do even that. Like that python, that python type sadhu that Prahlad Maharaj met. Some abhidutas. Jadvarad, Maharaj Rishabdev, they don't even make any effort to take any care of their body. Although they generally eat also. Some yogis, they don't eat, you know that. Some yogis, they don't even eat. When Dhruva Maharaj was performing his austerities, he gave up eating. He was only, what, breathing once a month or something like that. You know how they do that, right? You know how they do that? This is a side topic. Because all food is really prana. It's really sunshine. The sun, the plants eat the sunshine and they transform it into, into sugars and starches and then our minerals. They, of course, the plants also get little water and uh, soil minerals. So the plants are basically taking soil minerals, water, and sunshine and transforming that into a food that we can use. So the yogis, they learn how to get these things directly, like a plant. They can live on the sunshine. So therefore, they don't need to eat food. Anyway, so sometimes it's like that. But for most of us, and even for most of the pure devotees, they're doing things like eating, drinking water, using the toilet, taking a bath, having clothes, washing their clothes, cleaning their room. And the great devotees who are grahastas, that they're taking care of their family, taking care of serving their wife, serving their husband, serving their children, earning a livelihood, giving in charity. And these are the same activities that materialistic people are doing for sense gratification. But the devotee remains unaffected by them. Why? Because he's become attached to Krishna. He's, he's functioning on a different platform. And again, we all have experience of this. That if our mind is someplace else, that we're not affected by our externals. So what should the mind be engaged in? Wonderful, wonderful. Just first part of the first sentence of this purple. 
a pure devotee whose mind is always engaged in the service of the Lord. This is how to get peace and maintain it. Savayamana Krishna Padaru Maya Shaktamana Manmana Bhavamadvakta Mam Anusmaram Yujitcha Remember me even while you're fighting. Devotional service, devotional service, two words, devotional service. Not just service and not just devotion, but service with devotion. That means with the mind. Not just that I'm doing something, but I'm doing something consciously. So for the mind to always be engaged in service means that my mind is always fixed upon what I am doing. For us who are in the Krishna consciousness movement, everything we're doing is devotional service with our body. I mean, sometimes people talk about full-time devotees and part-time devotees, but I, I don't really understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. That's something else, but usually what they mean by that is like the brahmacharis living in the temple are full-time devotees and those grahastas living outside are part-time devotees. You know, we, we had an anti-grahasta mood in ISKCON starting in about 1975, and it's still there. So just because you're a grahasta doesn't mean that you're a part-time devotee, and just because you're a brahmachari doesn't mean you're a full-time devotee. Sorry to inform you. Like Prabhupada was asked, is, do you make more advancement living in the temple? He said, that depends whether or not your mind is on a different subject matter. So all of us should be living the life where everything we're doing with our body is devotional service. So the question now is, is it devotional? That's the question. That's what's going to do. So we've taken the first step. Engaging our body full-time in service, that's also important. Right? Krishna says in the 12th chapter, love me if you can't do that for sadhana bhakti, if you can't do that, work for me. So engaging our body in service to Krishna, that's working for Krishna. That's not really sadhana bhakti. But that's the first step. The next step is that our mind should be engaged in service. So the only thing we have to do is get our mind in sync with our body. That's all. We just have to do what we're doing. We're already doing the right thing. I mean, maybe some of us aren't always doing the right thing. That's another discussion. But assuming that we're always doing the right thing, then we just have to become aware of what we're doing and for whom we're doing it. That's all. That's, that's all you probably have to do. It's actually very simple. Prabhupada said the process is very simple. Doing it is difficult. The, the, the process itself is extremely simple. Do things that Krishna likes. Do things given in the Shastra. Do things given by Guru Sadhu Shastra. And then be conscious of what you're doing and for whom you're doing it. So I told this story many times that there were four people building a temple, like you're building a temple here. So I haven't seen any workers since I've been here, but I assume. Huh? They've gone for the holidays. So after the holidays, I'll assume that they'll come back. So you can go, you go to one worker and you say, what are you doing? And he says, I'm putting one brick on top of another. You go to another worker, what are you doing? I'm working to feed my family. I'm working to make money for my family. The next worker, what are you doing? 
I'm building a temple so that people can follow moral principles and worship God and we'll have a civilized society. Well, the next person, what are you doing? I'm building a house for the person I love. So the activity is the same. But the consciousness is different. And if one is always thinking, I'm doing this to please Guru and Krishna. I'm doing this to have a servant. The mind is always engaged in the service. That, that, that means not just that I'm thinking about what I'm doing, but I'm really making sure that what I'm doing is service. I'm checking, am I really doing something that's service? Service means what the other person wants, not what I want the other person to have. So many times when I travel, people ask me to eat what they cooked so they will be happy. And I always find it amusing, especially if I've already eaten more than I wanted. So I'm not going to say where it was, but I went someplace where they gave me a meal of something like 40 preparations. And even taking one little spoon of each thing, I, I couldn't eat anything else. And then a couple other people came. And they said, oh, what did you like to do? These people have come late. You must taste their cooking, otherwise they'll be so disappointed. I thought, who am I eating for, me or them? Who are they cooking for, me or them? Well, that's not service. Or if someone gives you a gift that you don't want, do you, have you ever gotten that? Somebody's birthday, I was at somebody's devotee's birthday party, and people were giving this devotee gifts, and someone gave him a, a sculpture of a dog made of china. And he's just looking at this, thinking, what am I doing this? So service means something that will please the other person, right? How does Rupa Goswami define pure devotional service? Do you know? Anyabilasita sunyam jnana kama anabhita anukumena krishna anushilam anukumena. It's got to be pleasing to Krishna. It's got to have a mood of being favorable to Krishna. The motive has to be to please Krishna. So we want to be free from duality and we want to be able to maintain peace and detachment. Then our mind always has to be thinking. What will please my spiritual master? What will please the Parampara? What will please Krishna? That doesn't mean that you can't do things that you want. It doesn't mean you become a nothing. Prabhupada said Krishna consciousness is not narrow or stereotyped. There are many, many things that I like and that I enjoy that are also pleasing to Krishna. I can choose something that's according to my nature. My nature means things that I naturally enjoy. That's what my nature means. So Krishna says we should serve him according to our nature, but in a way that's pleasing. That's actual service. Actual service means I'm thinking about Krishna's pleasure. I'm thinking about Krishna's pleasure. Just like I, I have one good friend who I was visiting recently. I, I can't see her very often. 
and somehow or other she had some time. So I noticed that on her home altar, she didn't have any flowers, maybe just like one flower. And I said, wouldn't you like to have some flowers? She says, well, I don't know. I said, I'll get you some flowers. So for two days, I was bringing her big bags of flowers. And then finally she said, I'm not, I'm not really a flower person. She said, this is what you like, it's not what I like. I said, well, what flowers do you offer your deity? She says, Tulsi flowers mostly. She said, if you really want to make me happy, get me Tulsi mushrooms. So what is that person like? And I think, first I was disappointed. I thought, oh, I want to give her flowers. But that wasn't what she wanted. Like the Prophet gives the example of the spiritual master says, please get me a glass of water. And you think, oh, milk will be better. And so my being engaged in service means I'm, I'm meditating. To meditate on what Krishna wants and what Prabhupada wants, what Guru Maharaj wants, what the Parampara wants. You know what? I have, to, I have to study the other person. I have to actually study the other person. If you give somebody some, you know, little clay dog for their house, that means you're not studying them. You're not thinking, what do they like? So therefore, we really hear about Krishna. We hear about Krishna. We study what the Srila Prabhupada is saying to understand what is their mood. What do they like? What will make them happy? And then I absorb my mind in that. I absorb my mind. How can I use the talents, the nature, the inclinations that Krishna has given me in this life because of my past karma, whatever, it doesn't matter why I have my nature. How can I use my nature? Where is there a connection? I see these are all the things Krishna and Guru wants. And these are the things that I can do. These are the talents and abilities. Where can I match them? How can I use somehow the body and mind I have in service. And this is to be a constant meditation of the mind. And giving everything with love. And if we're constantly absorbed like that, what happens? Krishna becomes pleased. Just like any of us. If somebody's really thinking about me and really trying to make me happy, of course I become pleased. often give me clothes, but only sometimes do they give me clothes that I like to wear. I was, I was someplace where a, couple, where a devotee bought me a sari, just exactly like the saris I like. I was so happy. I thought, oh, finally someone who notices what I like. We, we immediately become happy. So Krishna becomes happy. Then he realizes this is someone who wants to love me. This is not someone who wants to use me. And if somebody wants to love us, we naturally want to be with them. So then Krishna, he naturally, he wants to, we were just reading in the previous purport. Says here, the Supreme Lord is attracted by devotional service and he can approach us more swiftly than we can approach him. So as soon as Krishna sees this is someone who cares about me, that he can run into prayer. I mean, Krishna's so far away. You ever feel like that? Krishna's so far away. 
when we first come to Christian consciousness, we think we're going to be Christian conscious in a week or something. But after a while, you start seeing, I'm really far away. I'm, re I'm really an hopeless case. I mean, there's no way I'm going to become Christian conscious in this lifetime, or to speak of a hundred lifetimes, or a thousand lifetimes. It's just not going to happen. It's impossible. I'm just so fallen. But Krishna can approach us like that as soon as he sees this is someone who wants to please him. And then he reveals himself. He says, here I am. Act, don't try to see God. Act in such a way that God wants to see you. So as soon as we, our mind is absorbed in service, Krishna is attracted. Of course, he may test us. He may test us. Not may, will. And Guru will test us. Who are you really working for? Who are you really trying to please? But when, when we pass this test and Krishna sees, oh, you care about me. And he will reveal himself. So that is a very, very simple process. We don't have you sit in cold water in the winter. We don't have to light fires in the summer. We don't have to, you know, eat only old dry rice and wear torn clothing and give up our home and leave under a different tree every night. We don't have to do that. Just simply always engage our mind in service. So, Maybe today we can do that for two minutes. And then maybe tomorrow we'll do it for five minutes. Maybe the next day we'll do it for six minutes. So as much as possible. Engage our mind. We think, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? I am doing service for Krishna. We were talking yesterday about being expert. Let me try to do this. Prabhupada wrote a letter to Jai Pitaka Marsh, one of my favorite letters. That surrender means that whatever I'm doing for Krishna right now, let me do it to the best of my ability, never mind what it is. That I, whatever I'm doing right this moment, my mind is engaged in service. Let me do this so that Krishna will be happy. Let me do this in a way, the externals, internals, in a way that Krishna will say, yes, that's just how I like it. And how do you know how Krishna likes it? There's Shastra, there's Guru, you don't have to guess. Krishna's telling you very clearly, this is what I like, this is So this is, this is what Krishna consciousness means. And then the things of the world will be insignificant. If we get nice things or not nice things, it doesn't matter. And we will work with more enthusiasm, not for sense gratification, but to please our beloved Lord. So, do we have time? Should I end here? We have time for questions. Questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements. When you did Shastra, we feel like that instant is very good. Uh huh. In practice, like you find stuff like somebody insults me. Yes. Like make it make it go my body and make it. Internally, there's a lot of struggle going on. Yes. So. I, can I teach you a little something in educational theory? Do you have a pen? Can I be a teacher for a minute? Is that allowed or will I be in trouble? A pen for the Not here? Uh -huh. Yes, right? I don't need the eraser, just pen. Okay, so this is... 
from how how do we learn anything? Four steps. So first some people. It's possible. 
generally it doesn't. Those two intermediate stages are very uncomfortable. They are unpleasant. To be aware that I am a rascal, nonsense, fallen, envious, lusty, angry, greedy person is not pleasant. To think, oh my goodness, I am doing this for my own prestige. I'm doing this just to get money and a place to stay. I, I really, I'm so envious of the other devotees. Oh, look at that sannyasi guru. He's getting all of the praise and I'm getting it. Oh, and you, and, oh, and you become aware of all this. It's very uncomfortable. It's not pleasant. Which is why many people don't stay in Krishna consciousness when they get to that stage. Let me go back to being unconscious. Right? They say two people are happy, Bhagavatam says, the fools and the transcendentalists. So the bottom one is the fools and the top one is the transcendentalists. So then you want to come to the next stage. And that means that you do the right thing, but you do it deliberately with intelligence. You're not doing it automatically. So therefore, we're giving steps. Okay, the way you do it, like last night we were talking about somebody insults you, you think, okay, Krishna's protecting me, I don't need to protect myself. This person can only hurt me if Krishna wants. Krishna has some purpose. He's controlling everything. This person did something wrong. Let me help them for their benefit. I don't need to help them for my benefit because Krishna's already taken care of me. And I desire that they learn through joy because I want to learn through joy. And that will please Krishna. So there's some steps. This is what you can do. So first you may have to write down the steps and you have it in a little notebook and next time someone insults you, you pull out your notebook. What am I supposed to do? So, you know, you write down, oh, my mind is always supposed to be engaged in service. What does that mean? That means I become conscious of what I'm doing. What am I doing? For whom am I doing it? Is it please? These are the questions that. So maybe first you have to write that down and you have a little note on your desk. So you see it and you remember. You have to go through some steps. And that's also painful. It's, it's unpleasant. It feels very artificial. Right? Sadhana bhakti or abhyas yoga. Practice. Practice? Who wants to practice? You want to just sit down at the, you know, vina and play. Who wants to practice? Practice is not pleasant. My daughter's uh, taught Gardnatum dance for many, many years, and she said most of her students, they just want to perform. They don't want to come to the classes and practice. <laughs> uh, so we also don't want to practice. Oh, so much trouble. It's so hard. You know, if you want to love Krishna, you have to take some trouble. Without trouble, there's no meaning to love. Can you imagine? Someone says, I love you, I love you. you know, your wife says, oh, I love you so much. Well, how come there's no dinner? Oh, it's too much trouble. <laughs> Oh, my dear wife, I love you so much. Why is there no money? Oh, too much trouble. Yeah. <laughs> There's no meaning. There's no meaning. So we have to take some trouble. I mean, it's our fault that we're in Maya. That's not Krishna's fault. That's my fault. So now I have to take some trouble to get out of it. You know, that's, that's my penance. 
my real penance isn't just like fasting on a codice. My real penance is that I'm taking some trouble to practice loving Krishna. And gradually, this gets a bit faster and faster. The way I think of it is you can recognize Maya from further and further away. You know, when you're a new devotee, you can't recognize Maya until after she's been sitting on your head for three days. Oh my goodness, I'm in Maya. And after a while, you recognize Maya when she's in front of you, you know, right at your nose. And after a while, you recognize her when she's like a mile away. So this is the conscious incompetence, conscious competence. And gradually, you become consciously competent earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier. So in the beginning, somebody insults you, and after two weeks, you remember the philosophy. And then you apply it. And then gradually, after two days, you remember it. And then gradually, after ten minutes, you remember it. And then gradually, you remember immediately. You don't get affected. You see it coming. And then it becomes a habit. Because, by the way, being Krishna conscious is our nature. It's not an imposed habit. Even a materially imposed habit can become second nature. Even something that's not natural. You can train yourself by this process to do almost anything. But we're trying to do something that's already who we are. We're just trying to wake up who we are. So if we practice being who we are, then at a certain point it starts becoming more and more and more and more and more automatic. And then you get to the point that you're only conscious competent in a few cases. Maybe if it's a very serious insult from somebody you're very attached to, so then it takes you 10 minutes to remember and everything else you you can act automatically. One has to make a deliberate effort to practice. That's what abhyas yoga means. That's what sadhana bhakti means. I'm making it a deliberate... It doesn't really take a long time if you're making a deliberate effort to practice. If all you're doing is staying at this conscious incompetence level and just saying, oh, I'm so fallen, I'm so fallen, it's so hard, it's so hard, when will it happen automatically? You're going to be there for a long time and you'll get discouraged. You have to actually practice it, make some effort. Prabhupada says, until Nista, it's a hard struggle with determination and after that everything happens automatically. It doesn't mean there's no more effort, but it just means the effort is all blissful. Once you're a competent dancer or a competent vena player, then your practice is all blissful. It's not hard work anymore. You have to reach a certain level of proficiency. One devotee artist told me the standard is 10,000 hours of practice. Of course, that would mean if you take just japa time, that would be 13 years. But it has to be conscious practice. And Prabhupada often uses this piling like says the coward boys after many lifetimes of pious activities. And Prabhupada often talks about devotional service in that way. Accumulating. As you accumulate, then at a certain point. So we find this with teaching a child how to read. The child is struggling, struggling. Then at a certain point, they're just reading. So... You cannot jump from unconscious incompetence to unconscious competence, and you cannot jump from conscious incompetence to unconscious competence. So when you become aware of how you're doing it wrong, 
then you make a, a determined effort to do it right. And if you don't know how to do it right, then you ask guidance. Okay, I'm in this situation, how do I do it right? What are the steps? And if you ask one person and that answer doesn't help you, then ask another person because there's at least a hundred different ways to do the steps depending on individuals. And then you apply them, and at first it will be slow and difficult, and you'll forget, and gradually it'll become easier and easier and easier, and it'll become a part of you. Don't, you don't just wait for remembrance of Krishna at every moment to kind of pop into your mind. Make an effort to remember Krishna. Therefore, we put pictures in our house, therefore, we chant Japa every year, so many to make an effort. Is that all right? That was a long answer. Ten minutes. I'm very, very close to me. Of course. The the things that disturb us the most, you're not gonna like what I say. The thing that disturbs us the most is when there's a threat to something we think is essential for my living and for my happiness. So I'm depend there's certain people in my life that I think I'm dependent on these people. And if these people don't like me, I'm really going to be in trouble. We think, you know, if all of a sudden the, the, the ISKCON authorities don't like me anymore, if they say I'm a bad person, then I'll have no shelter. Or, you know, my husband, my wife, my temple commander, my children, especially when your children start growing up, you start thinking like this about your children, or your good friends, your mother and father, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, your boss at work, your body, <laughs> that's the biggest one actually. The biggest one, because we think my body is my shelter, that the way I will accomplish everything, that all of my desires are through my body, so when the body doesn't work, it's very hard to be detached. Or your mind, I think that I think I'm dependent on my mind, my body. So when those things shake, we, be, we tend to become very, very disturbed. When things that we're not dependent on shake, you know, if someone in some other Vaishnava organization doesn't like us, who cares? They're not giving me my prasadam. Right? If someone at the what's that, the Asta Lakshmi temple, if somebody there doesn't like me, would it? doesn't matter, but if you don't like me, that's really a problem, then I'll have no place to stay, then I'll have to go stay with the buffalo and the jackals, because you'll throw me out. So we have these, these, these fears. These are all because we have fallible soldiers. I'm thinking, you know, the temple is my shelter, the temple president is my shelter, my husband is my shelter, my wife is my shelter, my children, my in-laws, my government, my boss, and they're fallible soldiers. So if you think Krishna is your shelter, then you won't be disturbed by these things. And you remember that these, these other people and circumstances, that's my service. Taking care of my body is my service. Being nice to my wife is my service. But my happiness doesn't come from whether or not my wife is nice to me. My happiness comes from whether or not Krishna is pleased with me. And if Krishna is pleased with me, sometimes my wife is nice to me, sometimes my wife is not nice to me. It doesn't matter because that's not my shelter. If I have some, if I have some rich person who's every month giving me money, what do I care if other people give me money? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If Bill Gates is sending me a million dollars every month, what do I care if somebody gives me a 500 rupee donation or not? Isn't there's no meaning? 
If they give it, then fine. It's very nice. It's just a loving exchange. And if they don't give it, fine. So if I'm getting my satisfaction from Krishna in the heart, then if my wife is nice to me, that's wonderful. It's a loving exchange. If she's not nice to me, well, I feel bad that she's unhappy today. But she's not the source of my satisfaction. She's not my investment. It's not where I have my money invested. Like the residents of Rindavan, the Krishnas and the coils of Kalia, they're devastated because they've invested everything in Krishna. Krishna's their bank account. If Krishna dies, then we're finished. So where, where is your shelter? Where, you know, the other devotees we work with, our ISKCON society, our ISKCON, those to be our service, not our shelter. It's our service. It's service, Khan. I serve the local authorities. I serve my husband. I serve my wife. I serve my children. I serve the other brahmacharis. Even I have service for Krishna with my boss at work or my co-workers or my students. I'm trying to do something for them to please Krishna. With their pleasure or displeasure, what does it matter? And if you want to get faith in that, then you can see some devotees where their fallible soldiers have broken and they're still happy. Some devotee, you know, their wife left them and they're still happy in Krishna consciousness. Their body's broken and they're still happy in Krishna consciousness. They lost all their money, they're still happy in Krishna consciousness. Somebody tried to ruin their reputation, they were thrown out of the temple and they're still happy in Krishna consciousness. You know, Prabhupada was thrown out of the Gaudiya temple. You know that? He was a Vanaprasa. Did you know? He was staying at the Delhi temple. And the town president said, you're, you're disturbing the devotees. You know what disturbance Prabhupada was causing, right? He was telling them, go out and preach. <laughs> he told them to double their book uh, printing. They were printing 400 magazines every month. He said, for the, he said, I found a place for the same price, I'll print 800. And the town president said, then we'll have to distribute them. You were causing a disturbance. He said, you should go on Vrindavan Parakram, don't stay here. Vidura was thrown out, right? Duryodhan said, throw him out, leave him with nothing but his breath. And he thought, okay, time to go. Vrishan was thrown out. The Pandavas. But they were still happy. Krishna still took care of them. So you can meditate on, on some, you know, if you, look what your fear is. And you can meditate, some devotee, that, they, that that thing actually happened to them. And still Krishna's taking care of them, and they're still happy. You think, Krishna's going to take care of me, I don't have to worry. Let me depend on Krishna. Without that, without depending on Krishna, being connected with Krishna's service, remaining equipoised is impossible. We have to have some shelter, it's a tasta shakti. I have to have a shelter. I can't remain without shelter. If Krishna's not my shelter, then something else will be my shelter. And that something else then is tottering. And as soon as that something else totters, I will become disturbed. Because it's my shelter. It's my false shelter. Is that all right? So very, I mean, I personally find a very simple formula that whenever there's these disturbances, Krishna will take care of everything I need. 
That's one of my mantras. Another one of my mantras is everything is going to be okay, and if it's not okay, it'll still be okay. In other words, if everything doesn't, everything, if it doesn't work according to my plan, it'll still be all right. Yes. This sort of mentality will help us even if we think that uh, Krishna's service is not done properly and we get disturbed. Still, we think that Krishna is. If Krishna's service is not done properly. Oh, that's a tough one. First of all, you've got to make sure that your motive is really about Krishna's service. Yeah. I mean, I find often my motive in that situation is really my, my own ahankar, that I know better than you. I mean, are you really sure Krishna's service is not being done properly? But the first question is, am I really sure that they're wrong and I'm right? First question to ask yourself. Am I 100% really, sure that my understanding of Krishna's service is better than that person's understanding of Krishna's service? I have been very embarrassed sometimes to find out that the other person was right. Or maybe partially right. Maybe I'm a little bit right and they're a little bit right. Maybe there's some circumstance I don't understand. Sometimes a person will tell you, yes, we know that this is not good, but this is our circumstance. You understand? I had that, I'm not going to go into the details, but I had one devotee recently where I was talking to him and saying, why don't you do it like this and like this? Prabhupada wanted it like this. He, did, he said it should be like this. He gave the example and the devotee says, I know, but I am not able to manage that. Because of my ashram, because of my situation, I can't manage that. So if someone else manages it, that's fine, but I personally can't manage it. He said, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with the principle. Just like Robin said, boys and girls after age 10 should be educated separately. But maybe you don't have enough money to have two schools and two sets of teachers and two sets of books. So you may understand that this is not the way Prabhupada wants it, but you're in a, in a circumstance. And someone else may come and say, you're a nonsense. And maybe you're not a nonsense. Maybe you're doing the best you can with what you have. So that's the first thing. The next thing is, is this my service? This is a lot about the austerities of speech and what's beneficial. Is this, is, and do I have any authority here? I mean, so many people in the universe are doing the wrong thing, but it's not my business to go punish them. So, okay, am I Yamaraj? No. Am I a GBC? No. Am I a temple president? No. And even if you're a temple president, like you're a temple president here, but you're not a temple president in another temple, so you may be the husband and the father in your house, but you're not the husband and the father in somebody else's house. When I was on the train, there was one gentleman I, that he was dealing with his little daughters. I didn't like the way he was dealing with his daughters. But I'm not his mother or his mother-in-law. Or his, I'm not his authority. I have no idea. It wasn't my, wasn't my service. It wasn't my service. It wasn't given to me by Krishna. I mean, if an emergency, if he was trying to kill his children, then it doesn't matter who you are, what you are. I mean, is this my service? Is this, is this my service? Has anyone given me that responsibility? Or I'm just thinking it's my responsibility. Has my guru, has my father, has my authority, has anybody said to me, hey, you take care of this? 
So those are the kinds of questions to ask. And if you think it's really serious, then you go to the person responsible. You can go maybe twice. If they don't do anything, you can go to their authority. If they don't do anything, you can go to their authority. We have a system in Iskand. So you can go like to the head pujari. If the head pujari doesn't do anything, suppose they're doing some nonsense here, okay? Some completely bogus nonsense. They're offering Tulsi to the Subhadras. So you go to the Pujari and you say, okay, Prabhupada says you only offer Tulsi to Vishnu Tattva. This is not correct. And the Pujari doesn't listen to you. Next day again, you see as Subhadras go to speak, there's Tulsi. So then you go to the temple president. Maybe you go to, if it's a big temple, maybe you go to the temple commander. Each temple has to go to the temple president. And he just says, yes, 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 Prabhupada. And the next day again, you see. Or maybe he says, go ahead. Maybe there's a temple board. was once in a zone where I went to the local that zone had three GBCs I went to one of the GBCs I said I visited this temple in your zone and they're doing this and this I wanted the temple president first and I went to the local I said they're doing this and this they said you have to talk to the other GBC and he said you have to talk to the other GBC <laughs> and then they said to me we're not going to do anything about this they told me they said you're right this temple's violating the GBC resolution, they're violating Prabhupada's instructions, but we're not going to do anything about it. We've decided it's not important enough, and we're not going to fight with the local temple president about it. That's what he wants to do, and we're not going to do it. So I left it. But if you're not satisfied there, you can go to the GBC body. And if you're not satisfied there, then you can go to Srila Prabhupada. If you're not satisfied there, you can go to Krishna. Daya daya dharmasya gmani bhavati bhavata abhutanam adharmasya tadatmanam shrajamaha. When there's adharma, it's Krishna's business to take care of it. So you can go to your local deities and talk to them about it. I had a I had a complaint about something in the Vrindavan temple. So I was talking to Burjan Prabhu about it. He said, go talk to Balaram. He said, this is not Radhashama Sundar's temple, it's Krishna Balaram's temple. And I said, so why Balaram? He said, well, he's the older brother. <laughs> you can go to Krishna. And then you know what? It's up to Krishna. He may have his reasons why he's allowing that right now. Just like those of you who have children or those of you who are teachers. You don't correct everything all the time. Any of you who have anybody under your authority, you don't correct everything they're doing wrong all the time. You have to choose. We say choose your battles. You have to choose. There's one uh, expert in child raising. He says major on the majors and minor on the minors. You have to decide what's important and what's not important. And focus on certain things. And maybe after you fix that, you focus on another thing. So ultimately you go to Krishna and then you're a servant, you're a servant, you're a servant, you're a servant. You've taken it all the way up to the chain of command and put it in Krishna's hands. And then up to him. And if he wants you to do something about it, he'll let you know. Krishna doesn't have a difficult time communicating. He's expert. Communicating. And some things you have to tolerate. Krishna tolerates a lot of stuff. 
Krishna tolerates a lot of living entities doing a lot of nonsense for a long time. And he doesn't just go and fix everything all the time. And it pains him. It pains him. Of course, Bhakti Siddhartha Sarasvati said, and I never like to read this, what does he say the reformer should do? If you want to reform society, what should you do? Correct yourself. So none of us want to fix ourselves. We always want to fix everybody else. You can also say, am I doing perfect devotional service? When was the last time I did perfect devotional service? Do I follow every single instruction of Srila Prabhupada? Every minute of every day? How many minutes in the day am I really following Prabhupada's instructions? Am I thinking of Krishna always? That's the main instruction. Why don't I work on that first? So let's do that first. Prabhupada said, the highest principle is to save others and even higher than that is to save yourself. So if I'm only thinking of Krishna maybe two seconds a day, even during my japa and kirtan, and I'm not even doing devotional service, I'm just doing service. And how can I talk about how someone else is doing devotional service? I haven't even practically started my devotional service. The devotee said to Prabhupada, sometimes we fall into Maya. He said, no, you're always in Maya. Sometimes you fall into Krishna. You know, I really like something that Jesus said. He said, if you see a speck of dust in your brother's eye, he said, first take out the log in your own eye, and then you'll be able to better see the speck of dust in your brother's eye and take it out. So it's another thing to stop and say, who am I to correct anybody else? And do I always respond when people try to correct me? How do I respond? If someone comes to me and says, oh, that's nonsense, do I always say, oh, thank you, Prabhu? And I go fix it. Do I always do that? That's another question to ask yourself. So work on that first. If there's an emergency, I mean, but you got to make sure it's an emergency. If somebody's being killed in the temple room, or they're offering chicken to the deities, that happened once, you know, actually. So that kind of thing. Then it doesn't matter who you are or what you are. You just need to do something. Okay. Is that all right? Whenever I follow this advice I just gave you, I'm happy. Whenever I don't follow it, I'm very unhappy. I've also seen that if it's not your service, if you try to fix it, it doesn't work. I've also had this experience. The only thing that happens is I forget Krishna. It's very interesting. If I, if I see something wrong, it's actually wrong, and I try to fix it, but it's not my service to fix it. The only thing I do is I disturb my internal Krishna consciousness. That's all. And I get angry at the devotees, and I fault find the devotees, and I commit offenses, and nothing externally changes. It's very interesting. But we have a group of devotees who have made it their mission to fix this kind, you know. There's a but you'll find they make a lot of noise, and nothing, they never change anything. The only thing they change is they change their mentality so that they become Vaishnava Bharatis. And they think that the weed is the creeper. I've met people like this, and sometimes I'm one of those people. You know, that they're eating Vaishnava Bharat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and thinking it's prasad. So, that's not... Don't go there. So, for Bharatis, Prabhupada says, may take 700 lives to even start with Krishna. So is that all right?
Thank you very much. All glories to Shri Prabhupada. Now I'd like to win the key.